morning, Christ Community Church. My name is Chuck Marzon. I'm one of your elders here. And I'd like to uh, read the scripture this morning. If uh, you could find that on your pew or your blue bulletin, I'm sorry, the blue Bible in front of you, it's on page uh, 230. And we called a bit of an audible on this in the bulletin. It says we start at verse 3, but we'll be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 2 through 13. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord to serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and tasted on and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines grew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. <clears throat> then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. As you have your Bibles open there to 1 Samuel chapter 7, I want to make one more quick announcement, and that is, after this service, uh, usually we have two different adult Sunday school classes, and this morning there's just one, and that's in here, and it'll be a time of prayer and a time of talking about the next couple of classes or the next class that's coming up. Uh, it's always helpful to have your Bibles open, but maybe particularly today as we follow closely some of these words and phrases in 1 Samuel chapter 7, and I want to do just a quick little review because the chapter 7 ends the uh, one main section. There's three main sections in Samuel, and this is the end of the first one, 
there are three towering biblical figures in 1 Samuel. Samuel, obviously, Saul, and David. Saul, the first king of Israel, and David, the one who follows Saul. And yet all of this towering leadership starts with the whispered prayers of a desperate woman named Hannah. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2, then we find out the condition of Israel, led by Eli the priest and his two sons who were wicked. And we talked about that, and we talked about how we, what we discovered there was that the real enemy for Israel wasn't the Philistines, it was themselves. The enemy was on the inside. Chapter 3, we have this ray of hope that it's the call of Samuel. Samuel, remember, he's in the temple area. He's near these places where God speaks, and he gets to hear his name called by the Lord. And then last week, we looked at the chapters 4, 5, and 6 together, and it was all about the ark. Remember, the ark of God, this represents God's presence and uh, how it got misappropriately used in a battle in chapter 4. Uh, it, it got stolen or taken or captured into the Philistines area and what happened there. And then it returned in chapter 6. So we talked all about the ark. And then this morning, chapter 7 opens with the ark of God, which again, representing God's presence, it's being shuttled off out of the way to this sort of no-name city, kiriath Jerium. The Ark of the Lord returning should have been this great moment of celebration. It should have gone back to Shiloh, where the temple was, where the priests were. But instead, the Ark, where God's presence gets boxed up, gets kind of shoveled off into a closet. If you're old enough to remember the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, the very last scene, they had captured the the ark, and it gets put in a box in a big warehouse. And essentially, this is what's happened here in chapter 7. God's presence has actually come back to his people, and they just decide to say, hey, let's put him in the closet. That's what's happening here. 20 years goes by. You see that in verse 2. 20 years goes by. And the people, it's not as if they had totally forgotten about God. Uh, they would say, if you ask them that they're still believers, it's just that God doesn't carry any real weight in their lives. They don't consider God in their day-to-day -day lives. They, they come to the temple or they do certain things. They show up at church a couple of times a month. If they have some extra money, they give. But for them, God was a token and not a treasure. And because, this, this, because their relationship with God was one of, as a token... They, they continued to be regularly defeated by their enemies. Notice that in verse 3. Verse 3, they've come to Samuel, which we'll talk about in a minute. But one of the reasons they've come is so that Samuel will help them be delivered from the hand of the Philistines. They, they continue to be defeated by the enemy. They continue to be defeated by their sin and the reason they continue to be defeated by their sin is that they've pushed God off into a closet. He doesn't have any real weight. He's a token and not a treasure. These are people who look religious, but in reality, they're, they're really captive to their sin. So for 20 years, they're like a song stuck on repeat on your playlist. It just keeps playing the same song over and over again. And the song is superficial spirituality and enslavement to sin. 
superficial spirituality and enslavement to sin. And, and perhaps some place during the 20 years, they got tired of it. But they, they never could really take it seriously. They, they never could, could get out of this deadly groove. They weren't serious about their sin. And actually their hunger for the things of the world were, were really too strong. So they were stuck on repeat. And before we move on, I just want to ask this question. Does that sound like you? Anyone here stuck on repeat? I mean, you're religious. I mean, somebody asks you, you'd say you're a believer. You come a couple of times. If you have some extra money, you give. But really, you have God in a box. You have him in a closet. You, you kind of take him out at Christmas. He's got the nativity scene. You've got to set that up. And if you really have a real need, you take him out like a lucky charm and you pray and you say, hey, God, I really need you to come through for me on this issue. But really, in your day-to-day life, he's in a closet. And because of that, you're stuck on repeat. For you, God is a token and not a treasure. Perhaps you're like the person who once said, I've been a Christian 22 years. But instead of being a 22-year-old Christian, I'm a one-year-old Christian 22 times. I just keep doing the same thing over and over. And I wonder if there are any 22-year-old, one-year-old Christians here. I mean, you got in, you got some excitement, and God seemed real, but somehow... He got shuffled off into a closet, and you've basically just continued to live your life as you'd like it. And you take him out just every now and again. And I want to ask the question, how do you get out of that deadly groove? Because most of us probably have felt like we've been there, and of course we're all in danger of falling into that. So how do we get out of that deadly groove? And I want to retrace the steps the Israelites take to shed this superficial spirituality And hopefully we'll get some help along the way. And I want to look at it in four different steps. First one, we'll notice in verse 2, is the word lament. You can just kind of underline that or circle that. Lament or mourn or weeping, your your translation may say. For, For 20 years, they've had this superficial spirituality. 20 years, they've been constantly defeated by their sin. And finally, they have what I call... An I've had it moment. I've had it. You ever had those moments? Just, just, I, I, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I, I'm having an I, I've had it moment here. And I think this is what's happening here with this lament. And I'll show you why I think that in a minute. But they're having an I've had it moment. Now, only a few people will appreciate this illustration. But in iron leadership, I say they, they're having a Popeye moment. Now, only probably five people even know who Popeye is here. But, you know, the guy who's not really anatomically correct, you know, big forearms, tiny little upper arms. But everything, it always happens the same way. Something gets frustrating for Popeye in the little comic strip. And he starts blowing his top, right? And what does he say? I've had all I can stands. Anybody know it? And I can't stands no more. And right, he down the spinach and he, he wins, right? They're having a Popeye moment here. They're having a, I've had all I can stands 
of myself. I want you to hear them say, I'm sick of my own superficial spirituality. I'm sick of constantly being defeated by my sin. I'm sick of being 55 years old, but I'm just really a one-year-old Christian over and over and over again. I'm sick of that. And if you or, or I want to get out of this kind of groove, you're going to have to have a Popeye moment. Now, that's not the only thing you're going to have to have. But at some point, you're just going to have to have an I've had it moment. And just say, I'm just not going to, I don't care what it takes. I'm not going to stay here anymore. And I think that's what is meant by, by lament. But we all know that a true I've had it moment translates into action. It's not just an emotional thing like I've had it, but you've actually got to make another step. And they make a very critical second step that everybody has to make. They come to Samuel. What a, what a great step. The, the sick patient Israel finally goes to the doctor and asks for help. A huge second step. They see where they are. They've had it. They take that first step, but then they know, hey, I can't get out of this groove by myself, so I'm going to go get help. I'm going to get Samuel to help me or, in their case, help us. Eugene Peterson, who's written a number of books and recently passed away, was writing a book to pastors, and he says this. There's a saying among physicians that the doctor who is his own doctor has a fool for a doctor. None of us is capable of objectivity regarding our own bodies. We all prefer coddling, not healing. We prefer comfort over wholeness. We deceive ourselves about ourselves endlessly. If those entrusted with the care of the body cannot be trusted to look after their own body, far less can those entrusted with the care of souls Look after their own souls. It's really a book for pastors. Which are even more complex than their bodies and have a greater capacity for self-deceit. See, Peterson puts his finger on this issue right here. Is you, you, You're going to be so easily self-deceived. So you've got to go to another physician You've got to go to somebody outside of yourself and say, hey, I can't see myself correctly. I can't get out of this groove all by myself. I need help. And so they, they make a very wise and a critical choice. They, they come to Samuel. Now, I, I want us to notice now that's the second step. So the first, you've got to lament. The second thing is you've got to, you've got to come to somebody and say, I need help. I need outside help. And I want to just notice Samuel's response to them in verses 3 through 6. His very first word. That's his very first word. If. Very important little word there. If. If you were returning to the Lord with all your heart. Now Samuel, he's not a pushover. He's not a marshmallow spiritual coach. He, he's, he's, he's questioning whether their lament is even real. He's questioning the legitimacy of their lament because Samuel knows what you and I know. You can lament and not repent. You can weep and not walk away. 
You know this, do you not? You know this about yourself. Very easy to lament and never repent. And the way I was just trying to think about that, what does that look like? And the way I thought about it is it just looks like somebody who pivots around the same spot. You know what I'm talking about? So you lament, but you, you never really go anywhere. You don't, you don't repent, so you can never really move. And so you say, I'm really sorry about that. But, but I'm not interested in move, really moving. Oh, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. And you know what you can do? You can do this for 20 years. You can spend your whole life lamenting where you are without ever moving. Samuel knows it. So he looks at him and says, if, if, if you're ready to take the next step and really walk away, if you're really ready to return to the Lord with all of your heart, if you're really ready to direct your attention towards them. So we have to ask ourselves, you could be very sorry about your sin. You could say the confession with all of your heart. But then when you leave, you never take the next step. The, the second thing he does is he says, well, here's a requirement. If you're returning, then you have to put away, it says in the ESV. Uh, in the NIV, I think it says remove. If you're going to return, you've got to remove. Returning means removal. Returning requires removal. Returning requires removal. Say that with me. Returning requires removal. If you're going to return to the Lord, you've got to remove some things. You can't carry everything that you're carrying right now. There's some things that have to be put away or they have to be removed. And Samuel is such a skilled surgeon. This is why they made such an excellent choice because he takes out the scalpel and he points it right at the problem. He doesn't sort of medicate or say, oh, it's, you know, I'm sure you didn't really mean that. No, he takes out the knife. And he says, look, you're, you're worshiping these two idols, Baal and Ashtoreth. These are the male and female idols of the Canaanites. It's like, and this will be very hard for you to believe or try to even imagine, I think, but it's like people in church have gotten too intertwined with the culture. Can you imagine that? The people coming to the church, they're coming, but they're still, they're wrapped up and wrapped into the culture. And he says, hey, this right here, we got to remove this right here. And I'm taking my scalpel out and we're going to cut this off. Interesting that the real poison in worshiping Ashtoreth, the, the female deity, when you went to worship her, it included sexual activity. So when your worship of the world includes sexual activity, what a defeating power. What a defeating power. And Samuel knows it. He's not going to play games with them. They, they've gotten their whole heart, their mind, their body and soul has been sucked up 
And he's saying, we've got to cut this off. We can't play any games with it. We can't loosen its grip. We've got to cut it off. And so he takes out his scalpel and says, these are the things that we have to remove. It's not going to be easy. Someone might say, well, good thing we don't have those kind of idols anymore. (laughs) Tim Keller writes a great book about idolatry. It's called Counterfeit Gods. And he says this, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning. Then I'll feel significant. Then I'll feel secure. Then I'll feel satisfied. And there are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but the best way to describe it is worship. Whatever that thing is in your heart of hearts that you say, if I have that, I'm finally secure, I'm finally satisfied, then it's worship. And he lists several, money, sex, control, politics, relationships, comfort, race, nationality, approval, education. List of idols in our culture is long. And so we need to ask ourselves, do we even know what we love? I mean, do you really know what your heart of heart says? What you worship? Probably you're going to need help identifying it, is my guess. That's why they go to Samuel. I mean, we we can guess some things, but there's some things we just can't see about ourselves. So I need a surgeon. I need another doctor to come in and say, I'm putting the knife on this thing. This is it. This is the thing that's got your soul captured. And we need this outside help because, as Peterson says, we have such a great capacity for self-deceit. Then Samuel says this, direct your heart to the Lord. I love that phrase. That's my favorite phrase in this whole uh, chapter. Direct your heart. Direct your heart. Getting out of the groove is going to be getting into a different groove. Directing your heart towards God. And there's no better person to give help than Samuel. Samuel knows how to direct your heart. Remember we said this in his call? Remember where Eli was? Eli was in his own house. And where was Samuel? Samuel was in the house of the Lord. So when God called, he could hear, he could hear, he could hear. He was near, near the flame, near the ark. He could hear. He, put in, he had put himself in the way of the Lord. That's the way we described it. So he put himself by spiritual disciplines. He put himself in God's way. So when God was ready to speak, he could actually hear. And that's what Samuel's saying. You've got to direct your heart. You've got to Put yourself in the way of, and the way I try to describe it, spiritual disciplines. Remember this, the, how you get a suntan? Remember that? You know, I'm going to go work on my suntan. Well, what does that mean, work on your suntan? You just, you just put yourself in front of the object that changes your complexion. And that's what Samuel's saying to these guys. You're going to have to put yourself in the way of God who's going to change your complexion. You're putting yourself in the way of the world. You're putting yourself constantly in front of a screen, in front of a magazine, in front of another person, whatever that is, and they're changing your complexion. And you need to get over here and get in front of the Lord, and He can change your complexion. You need to get in the way of the Lord. 
So he's identifying their problem. He's saying you've got to redirect your heart. And then he gives them several things that could be a whole sermon series, which I won't take the time to, to do here. But I can just mention five here in verse 6. Notice these are the spiritual disciplines that he recommends. There's more that we could talk about, but these are the ones that are just in this, in this verse. First of all, you actively participate in corporate gatherings. They are gathered together, verse 6. You know, you can't make spiritual, meaningful spiritual progress on your own. Well, I mean, I can have quiet time, and I've got the iPod, and I've got... Yeah, that's called self-deceit. If you think you can make meaningful spiritual progress on your own, your heart's wrapped up in something else. I'm not saying you can make no spiritual progress, but it's a corporate effort. It's not something that you can just do by yourself. And they understand that. So Samuel's gathering them together. They need the strength of the whole body to get out of this groove. They pray. It's mentioned a couple of times. Prayer is like the... You know, the UV index, keeping up with the suntan theme. You know, in the summer, the UV index is safe if it's, whatever, 4 or 5, and it's not good if it's 8 or 9. Prayer's like a 12. 12 is 12 that you really get your complexion changed when you pray. And so they're praying. They're, you're getting in God's way. They're fasting. They're, they're saying no to their physical bodies so that when the idols of the culture come in and try to take over their soul, they'll have some cross-training to say, I can say no to hunger. I can say no to this kind of hunger as well. Not the hunger of my stomach, but the hunger of my heart. And then they confess. You see that? We have sinned against the Lord. They're not blame-shifting. I've gotten caught up in everybody else's sin. That's, that's not a good confession. I have sinned. I have sinned against the Lord. This is why I think the lament is true. They're really wanting to move away. And then finally, Samuel judged the people of the Lord. Now, when we think of judge, you just think of somebody in a black robe. But it means Samuel keeps them accountable. They continue to meet together. Samuel keeps them accountable to what they said. He keeps, them, he keeps pushing them in front of the Lord. This is why it's a corporate effort. Now, we can mention more, but somebody might just read this list and think, that's like a lot of work. I mean, can I just pray and move on? What's the answer to that? No. No, you can't. If you think you can, you don't really realize how entangled your whole soul is in the world. You cannot get a suntan by walking out of this room and getting in your car. That's not enough time. You, you don't have any idea the pressure that the culture has weight on your soul. Every time you go, whatever your befalling sin is, it's always on attack. It's always there. So, yes, it's going to take a lot of effort. It's going to take a lot of energy on your part, on the, on the corporate part, on a pastor's part, to get out of that superficial groove where I'm not constantly being defeated by my sin. The third thing we see here, first is they lament. Second, secondly, they come to Samuel, and Samuel gives them all these things that 
they need to be thinking about. Third, verses 7 through 10, there's a test. It's a visit from an old enemy. When the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered, the lords of the Philistines, ah, we can't have that. So let's go back and attack. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid. And the people of Israel, they come to Samuel and say, please pray for us. Now you could just fill this in with your own enemy. Not the Philistines, but when anger hears that I'm at Christ Community Church, then anger decides it's going to come back and battle me. When lust hears that I'm at Christ Community Church, then lust is going to come and attack. When the need for approval hears that I'm at Christ Community Church, it's going to come and attack. It's, isn't that, don't you find that true? You're just beginning to make some kind of progress. You're just taking the the first, I'm just taking the first tiny steps. I haven't even gotten that far. I'm not very strong. And the enemy, bam, they come back in. It's as if I've heard someone say, when I want to do good. Yeah, some of you have heard the same thing. Evil is right there with me. You know it. Paul, the apostle Paul knows it, Romans 7. Samuel knows it. These people know it. This old enemy comes back in and wants to take over my soul. So they have this great battle here. And we're supposed to, if we have time, go back and compare the battle in chapter 4 with the battle in chapter 7. The battle in chapter 4, they lost to the Philistines. And the battle in chapter 7, they won against the Philistines. So if we had time, we'd go back and say, let's just look at these two battles because there's two different outcomes. What, what has happened here? And I can just mention a few. First of all, there's been a significant change in leadership. We, we've dumped Eli and his two wicked sons. We've got Samuel. Second, instead of just fighting without consulting God, which they did in chapter 4, and then trying to use God like a lucky charm, they go to Samuel and just they're asking for desperate prayer. That's their battle strategy, desperate prayer. Finally, very interestingly enough, remember when the ark of God came into the camp and all the, all the Israelites shouted and the Philistines heard it? Well, the, the Israelites shout, it wasn't big enough for defeat. But here, who shouts? Here, verse 10, the Lord thunders. See the difference? In the battle that I lost, it was me shouting, hey, I'm going to do this. Hey, I'm going to get out of here. Hey, I'm going to... Hey, that, hey, that's not going to work. Now, when I'm really submitted to the Lord, Lord, I'm desperately praying that you do something. And something happens. See, there's a huge difference between those two things. And you're supposed to notice those two different things. If you really want to get out of the groove, if you think it's you going to just make yourself make it happen, it's not going to last very long. You're going to get some new enemy even if you defeat this one. This is, I'm desperately praying for God to move on my behalf. Now, I want to just say here, I want to pause just for a second and give a confession and a concern. And then we'll finish our, with our last point. My confession is that desperate prayer 
is not my favorite strategy. Personally, I prefer planning, hard work, strategic leadership meetings, organization. I like all of those over desperate prayer. Because I feel like I can get something done there. I, I've gotten myself in the mix. I've got my whiteboard. I've got things sketched out. I, it's like me being the general trying to say I'm going to beat the Philistines. What a bad plan. And of course, those things aren't bad, but when they become the primary tool, they become Paul Phillips shouting. And that's not going to defeat the enemy. One commentary says, the church is so used to developing new strategies, gimmicks, and programming that she can easily dupe herself into thinking she lives by her own cleverness. Instead of seeing prayer, desperate prayer, as the primary rational activity. So I have, to work, I, have to, I have to work against that planning piece as being the primary piece and making prayer the primary piece. And my concern, my concern is we just, we're spending a lot of time, I think, necessarily talking about Christ Community Church 2.0. We're spending a lot of time talking about the capital campaign. And we have a lot of talent at Christ Community Church. I think if we shout loud enough, we can make things happen. And we can pat ourselves on the back when it's done. Or we can choose desperate prayer. Then God could do something that we couldn't even ask or imagine. So I'm saying this to me. I'm saying it to all of us. I'm saying it specifically to people who are on the team for the capital campaign. Let's, let's not let the strategic plan become the driving force. Let's let desperate prayer be the driving force. So for three weeks in December, we'll have a time of prayer. That'll be mentioned, and I want you to think about this sermon at that time. Finally, let's just look at verse 12, and we'll close here as we go towards communion. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up, and he called this stone Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. And so the Philistines, this, this, this just makes my soul peaceful. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. Man, I want that. I want God's hand to be against my sin, not my hand against my sin. That's where real victory happens. And they set up this stone. It's called an Ebenezer. It's a stone of help. And so they go back out to that battlefield and say, hey, let's remember that, that God helped us. God really rescued us. It wasn't by ourselves. It wasn't by our own shouting. So they, they, they have had this Ebenezer stone. And we'll sing the song at the close. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I have come. They say, we've gotten to this point because of God's help. These people were smart. They understood their sin. They lamented. They were really broken over their sin. And they go to Samuel the priest and say, can you help us? We have a much greater high priest. Who has a strong and perfect plea on your behalf. 
And his name is not Samuel. Samuel's a shadow of Jesus. And so we come to remember that he fights for us. And our, our effort is to get behind him and trust in his power, in his thunder, and not our shouting. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to this communion table, we, everyone here comes with a spiritual limp. But, but there are some of us here that this sermon was written just for their current situation. They're, they've put you in a box. They've repeated the same pattern for 20 years. And I pray that you would use your word. You would use this communion table. You would use this gathering. You, by your Holy Spirit, would work a, a work that helps us move from just lamenting to repenting and removing and putting things away. But you need to help, help us, Lord, so we're easily entangled in the things of the world. Would you use this time of remembrance to strengthen our souls? As you, on the last night, took a cup to people who are going to, to easily forget your strength and power and say, I want you to know that this is going to be my blood and my body that's going to be broken and spilled on your behalf. Would you take these elements and, and use them for supernatural purposes, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the deacons will come forward and usher you out. If you're someone who's trusted in Christ, we'd ask you to race forward. Know that he's your great high priest. If you're not sure, I would say just remain and begin to think for yourself. What, what, have, I, what have I put my hope in? You come when you're ready.